Hi, welcome to GRCME, the podcast where we interview governance, risk, and compliance thought leaders on hot topics, industry-specific challenges, and trends to learn about their methods, solutions, and outlook in the space, and hopefully have a little fun doing it. I'm your host, Chris Clark. With me today is John Griffin. John is the Compliance Program Manager at Intel Federal. He has over 20 years of focus on a diverse set of GRC topics, including regulatory, compliance, internal audit, and governance and contracting, and has in-depth experience in areas such as international trade finance, import control, export control, FCPA, anti-boycott, FAR, and CAS. John, welcome. Could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Actually, I've uh, spent 38 years in government contracting starting back in the 80s. So I've had the ability to watch as uh, things change, regulatory changes, business changes. So it's been a unique opportunity. Currently, I'm working for Intel. I was hired in to help them assimilate into the U.S. federal regulatory environment. And as you can imagine, compliance is probably one of the largest challenges they've had, wrapping their head around that, being a commercial company and understanding how intense and in-depth the regulatory oversight is anytime you take money from the government. That's kind of it for my current job. Been in it now for nine years as of last month. That's crazy. 38 years is pretty incredible. I'd be interested, um, what advice would you give to someone either getting started or exploring or in their career in GRC? One of the backgrounds that helped me to uh, become a better risk manager, better compliance officer, better internal auditor is understanding contracts. Since contracts are so finite, when you sign a contract, it's you live with what you have. So then understanding what you signed up to, especially in an environment where you have quite a few clauses that are regulatorily directed into each of the contracts, we have what they call the Christian doctrine, which means even if they don't put the clause in there, it's a given that that clause exists for that contract. So I've always told people, and it's not my wisdom, it's the practice of most government contractors is that you would get into the contracts area, understand that better from how you're forming those, because that's really establishing your compliance base for that program and also how it affects the rest of the company. That's so interesting to think about. I guess reflecting for myself, I before Logigate, I spent time working on like software contracts, particularly in like the concept of like license compliance. And similarly, it, it's interesting to think about how that type of agreements and those types of like, to your point, like finite documentation kind of sets the basis for risk in a lot of ways. Like in reflection, that's super powerful. When you're talking about risk, you're saying that to yourself that from a compliance standpoint or from a a GRC standpoint, you have the risk that comes with business, just business risk. But then on top of that, you pile on regulatory or, you know, CMMC or NIST, any of those new requirements. And then on top of that, what you've now signed up for in that individual contract. So without staying on top of your risks and understanding your risks as you assume them, you're not going to be very effective. So your your background in licensing, especially, because that can be one where you could lose your intellectual property if you're not properly licensing, or you could be at risk of a lawsuit if you're not protecting a third-party software. So your background probably is uh, really helps you. Before we kind of like jump further into the meat of this discussion, I kind of always like to 
take a second and jokingly discuss risk management in real life. So just kind of like as risk managers, we tend to focus on it within a business context, but there are little things that we do every day to manage risk in our own life. And I always like to kind of think about like, well, for me, one thing that I always do is like, I like to mitigate out the risk of, I'm going to call like sleepiness. <laughs> so in the, in the morning, I am not at my best when I haven't had my cup of coffee. And so one of the things that I always do to like kind of prevent making mistakes in the morning is I always plan out like my outfits the day before, before I go to bed, because at that point I'm still like very active and like mentally on top of it. I will like pick out whatever workout clothes or like my outfit for the day, because I know mentally that's how I get ahead of either waking my wife up in the morning on accident or like stumbling and picking something in the dark that doesn't work. So it's just a kind of like a goofy example of how I try to mitigate risk in my day to day. I'd be interested, John, if you have anything similar, uh, how do you manage risk in your personal life? It's funny you should mention that. My daughter used to get a kick out of it. I was uh, working downtown Chicago for Boeing uh, World Headquarters, and it was a trying trip. And I used to use the train to recalibrate my day and try to ignore the things around me. But you kid around about laying out your clothes. I would lay out my breakfast plate, toothpick for the cut-up banana, knife, toast sitting there, everything awaiting my getting up in the morning so I didn't have to worry about all those things on top of focusing myself on what the day should be. So you call it quirky or goofy. I I, I agree. And my wife and my daughter would, would agree as well. We have risks all the time that we take. I had risks just going into Chicago, you know, not taking the right train or taking the risk of, of missing the train. Or, But that's how we think. We think in terms of how do I mitigate my risk? I travel for Boeing all over the world doing Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. I would actually literally get my seats on each of the planes going between countries. I would lay out my timeline, the time differences, my meetings. I would have to meet with the ambassadors and also with uh, the audit firm in the country and all the, the dealers. I would have everything laid out four weeks in advance, Chris, because I did not want to have the risk of missing a flight or, you know, throwing things off. So I think my mindset was always going towards, I'm going to be in compliance, I'm going to be at risk, because I saw that the best solution for risk is preparation and focus. So I love your story. Thank you. I mean, I guess like the example you just laid out is kind of taking that to the extreme when you're talking about the your Boeing experience and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, where um. Could you give a little bit of background on the FCPA and I guess like what you learned practicing that all those years? Sure. Well, part of my experience was working in accounting and looking at sitting down with financial documents and be able to tell a story. So I'd sit down and I'd look at year over year what things were. I'd look at the relationships between different accounts and I would be able to form a picture of what the company was doing. You know, maybe not having the why they were doing it, but I would get pretty close. And then you take that and you apply it going international. And so you you start out with, I'm going to meet with these dealers or these agents, uh, a lot of them tied to, to the actual government of that country. And I'm going to try to evaluate their books and see what's going on. Because 
the, the old adage, follow the money. <laughs> Believe me, money cannot hide corruption. I mean, it, you, you follow the money and you'll find things. And I, I've many times I've drilled down to different accounts, different countries, translated uh, statements, financial statements into English and came up with a real story before I even got on the plane to go evaluate the groups. And of course, we were looking at high risk because we're dumping billions of dollars into these people's purchasing uh, process and they're getting a high commission. And the governments, now you have US government and you have that in-country government that you need to comply with. So that was very important is just to be able to look at the financials and tell a story. And I think you can do that with a lot of different things. I use financials only because that's the only external elements that I could get my hands on immediately. For instance, we year, years ago, we would look at subcontractors to find out if they were viable because we were going to dump a lot of our business into that company. And I, I mentioned this uh, when we were talking previously. One of the things that I would do is I would go out three times a day, right around each shift change, and I would count the number of cars in the parking lot. And if I found that some of their shifts were eliminated or they were, you know, skinny down, I could tell that the company might be having problems because we kept track of their their cars in their parking lot from the last time we were there. And inevitably, we would go in and find that uh, they were highly leveraged, heavily in debt, and we were their main business so that, you know, if something happened, uh, we would be the ones that would lose out. So many different elements you can see and identify risk. And I think that's where the tool, having an automated tool helps to do that because that's one less element of one less step you have to take in your mind of, of keeping track of things. So yeah, a lot of interesting things, ways of assigning or finding risk. That car example is just like so interesting to me. And it's interesting in like the sense of if you were to go and look at a company and like look at the risk associated or like just try to figure out like how is the company doing, you can, there's like the normal ways of it, like what are your financials, stuff like that. But then, I mean, you all had this heuristic, this kind of like other area where you would just count the cars from the ships. And I'd be interested in like, what are other ways that you think risk managers can think about? things that are kind of like off the beaten path, so to speak. How did you learn that counting cars was the way to determine whether a company was like doing well or not? Yeah, it was when I was with Honeywell and there were some folks that had been there for a while that were expert within the industry. As a matter of fact, they were recognized by President Clinton and brought to the White House. And I, I tagged along, as a matter of fact, because they were so progressive on not only identifying risk, but also um, helping to mitigate that risk to build up small businesses. So uh, they had experience. That's what it was. They just looked for things that would be attributes of potential risk. They would look for science. And I know uh, through training I've had years ago, I worked for Harris Corporation and they had some brilliant legal minds there that came up with some red flags you just never would think about. But now they're old hat. You know, people know that they need to look for transactions in cash or looking for where money is being sent and a major uh, purchase or sale. And a lot of these you can pick up now. A lot of the uh, consulting firms put together these uh, risk programs where you can go in and they'll talk about things, especially FCPA. FCPA is one where they're uh, expanding their knowledge base and their experiences are popping up quite a bit. We would actually, when I would go in country, I would actually start reading newspapers that addressed the dealer, you know, I would search for that. You could do searches for that. We would do a 
red flag company would do background checks. Uh, you'd look for the same name of somebody in different ways. As a matter of fact, we had one instance uh, when I was at General Dynamics where uh, we had a whistleblower contact the federal government. So the government was coming in on Monday, and we had to figure out on a Friday afternoon what was going on. So I went over to the location where the employee worked, and the way I found that out, this is a little story, a side story. I hope I'm not boring anybody with the government, DCA auditors came in and they wanted to pull the time cards of all the employees in a particular department, but they wouldn't tell us which one. So I gave them access to the time cards and I told them, you know, my process is that I take this pink card and I slip it in where I've taken the card out of, and then you can go use the copy machine down the hall to make your copies. Well, they didn't realize there's a copy machine right next to the to their cards, and so they pulled the cards and they went down to make their copies. And while they were there, I pulled the pink cards and took wrote down the name of the person because they were all in alphabetical or uh, departmental order, or excuse me, name, name order. So I took down the names of the people, looked at who was in front of those people, figured out they're all in one department 384. So I knew where the actual location was. It was in Diamond Bar. So I went out to Diamond Bar and I started looking for anomalies. I started with purchase orders because that's always fraught with potential fraud. And I noticed um, inconsistencies where they were purchasing more than they should have of these particular power units. And I tried to identify one piece of equipment that had a serialized number, the smallest one, too. So I didn't, you know, it wouldn't be too difficult for me. So then one of the engineers that worked there played basketball with me on Friday nights over at Steelworks. And he hung out with me and we went and pulled some of these power units, found out that they were switching the power units from one contract to a, another contract because they were running late on that contract. Plus, one was a cost type and one was a fixed price. So the fixed price contract, you only get so many dollars and then you're cut off. Cost type contract, the government reimburses for everything. So they were taking the power units off the cost type contract and moving to the fixed price contract, which is like a huge no-no for the government. So I took copies of all the purchase orders and, and went back to, uh, you know, went play basketball. Monday morning, I, I came in early and I noticed the purchase orders were in a different place on this desk. And as I pulled them, I looked and the information at the top was different, but you could tell it might have been whited out. So then we looked at the name of the person who sat at that desk, and they had a different name from the manager who was signing the purchase orders. But then we looked at the HR information. It turns out this secretary lives at the same address as this manager. Turns out it's his daughter-in-law. So they were conspiring to defraud the government this way. And on top of that, it had been reported to the ethics director three months before, and he didn't do anything about it. So... We walked three people out the door just simply based on slipping pink cards into a time card tray. Have they made a movie about this yet? <laughs> Have you started a movie yet, John? It's funny because it's it, it didn't seem like we were doing risk assessment. It didn't seem like we were doing investigation. It just seemed like we were just doing our job. Uh, the engineer was, he loved being involved in this because, you know, engineers are, they're bored stiff anyway. So this was like Jay's bond to him. And it was, and it kind of fell in our lap. These people, you know, when people are, sometimes when they are, are in a perpetual fraudulent uh, mindset, they eventually get sloppy. And that's what these people did. They just got sloppy. They'd been getting away with it for so long. They had the ethics director turn their back. So they didn't think anything of it. So I think it was because they were a little, 
or sloppy that I was able to find this. I actually got promoted to General Dynamics Internal Audit at that point. So that was nice. That was a quick job. <laughs> well, I mean, to follow that point is like you've had these different roles, whether that's like foreign corrupt practices, whether it's internal audit, whether that's regulatory compliance. I know that I kind of at points think of these as like very distinct areas of risk. And so what I'm interested in is like, have you had to change your mindset and your approach to risk as you've moved to these different roles? Or yeah, like how have you had to adjust or like learn new topics and processes as you move to these different roles in these different areas? No, that's a great question. So certainly it's a skill that is acquired and you leverage off of other people's brilliance. And uh, as I moved into different roles, I always had that mindset that, you know, there was a right way of doing things. There is risk associated with not doing things the right way or running a business in an out of way, because then you have people that are taking risks to make things look good. I think my depth of where risks are grew as I went between each of the different uh, functions. But part of the reason that I was given those roles is because I did have that mindset of compliance, basically, was my uh, forte. So being able to go into contracts and work as a contract manager, subcontracts, trade finance, program management a little bit, international program manager, all those were, I wasn't an expert in those, but I brought that mindset. And so there were benefits to having me move into those uh, roles. But But for each group that you learn about, but even now, today, I do not depend on my knowledge of a particular area. Once we have a risk that's identified, I sit with the risk owner and I try to understand the ramifications. Because for me, I need to promulgate that upward to our board of managers to let them know what the risks are. And if I don't understand those risks, and I don't think there's anyone in the world that understands every functional group or every aspect of business or every contractual requirement, and what the risk is. One thing we do, I have to salute to contracts, they actually have a contract clause matrix that lists every clause that we've ever accepted by the government, every regulatory requirement, and what the risk is. We actually have a repository that you go to and say, gosh, what's the risk of having this particular 32.405 clause in here? And it will explain what the risk is. So I've helped to populate that, but I've also been a beneficiary of, of using that. That's super cool. And points, when we think about regulatory compliance, a lot of that we think about is like, how are you fulfilling an obligation? And, you know, it's more general, right? Like it's not in doing business with the federal government. It's in like complying with the laws and regulations of the land. But when you're doing business with the government, there's such an intersection there. And I don't want to say that your contract is law, but it's very similar in that sense of like, you need to risk assess your obligations and the controls that you have in place to comply with those. That's just like a fascinating kind of like mindset shift, I think, for a lot of risk managers. Yeah, the federal government mandates quite a bit, but I always step back and tell our people that a good business that's running profitable will follow these same things. They just don't mandate them. So don't think of the government as coming in and trying to, you know, it's not like the traditional view of the government of coming in and messing things up. Every regulatory law or standard that's in there came from case law, and there's a reason why it's in there. And your your point about the contracts, for the most part, contracts is your particular legal standard for executing on that particular program. 
However, there is a caveat. There are certain clauses or federal acquisition regulations that cannot be mandated away. So you can't put a clause in there that says you can drink as much alcohol as you want and charge it to the government. Alcohol is unallowable to the government. They don't like that. So you have to pull that out. So there are some things that cannot be, even the, the strength of a contracting officer who is what they call a warrant officer, he has the purse strings to sell or to use money of the government to buy things. Even that powerful position cannot mandate away certain requirements. But for the most part, I'm going to execute a program. A contract is my constitution, basically. The business relationship there is just fascinating. You're working with the government, but then you also have vendors and third parties that you're working with. How does it affect how you supplier business or vendor business or third party risk? That's such a higher level of scrutiny in like your suppliers and like your even your fourth parties. How is that risk landscape, I guess, different? Yeah. So you think that, oh boy, we're doing business with the federal government, we're, we got all kinds of risk at our subcontractor or procurement level. But the way it's set up is, first of all, picture the fact that I'm the prime contractor. I'm the one that has a relationship with, say, the Department of Defense. So I have that responsibility towards them. Now, they send me a contract that has hundreds of different clauses and requirements. I then turn around to a subcontractor and I flow those down to the subcontractor. So what I have done is now I have a relationship directly with the supplier. The supplier does not have a relationship with the Department of Defense. They have a relationship with me. So they're responsible for complying with those things. But at the same time, when you flow those down, a lot of the responsibility is gone because you've done your due diligence. Now, there are certain elements of federal contracting that you are required to do a little more, you might have a, a supplier complete a survey, or you might do, if you take property and you lend it to the sub, and it happens to be the government's property, then you would go in and do audits. So there is some extension of that, but the risk is mitigated through those flow down clauses. It's basically saying, hey, you said you're going to do these things. If you don't, it's contractual noncompliance, and I can go after you, I'll turn to the government and say, oh boy, I don't know what to do with these guys. So that's how you mitigate the risk with a subcontractor. And with that, is it always all of those clauses are passed down? Are there situations where you are kind of like almost like risk ranking some of those clauses down? Yeah, let me. That's a great question. So the big, I'll just tell you the biggest distinction. When I'm working with the federal government, I'm selling them a product, and that product is now considered a defense article. So I'm selling them something needs to be handled under cost accounting standards. But if I have a supplier, say they're building uh, laundry racks, okay, and they're commercially available and they sell them commercially, well, I can't flow down all those clauses to them because they aren't actually providing the government a non-commercial item, meaning a defense article item. So I will just flow down a few clauses or I'll go to them and ask them to sign what's called a commercial item determination, a CID, which basically they support the fact that they do multiple sales of this to, to commercial companies. They sell them to Walmart or Target or whatever. And they do what they call a PRD, which is a price reasonableness determination. They say, yeah, we're charging you 50 bucks. You know, we charge everybody 50 bucks. Or, and we look at the catalog over here. 
there's another company, uh, Fly-By-Night, that's charging $48. So we're pretty close. Now, those are the only things that subcontractors going to need to be responsible for. Now they don't have any of those other cost accounting standards. And there's like I forget, 21, 22 standards that they have to maintain. So there are situations where you can use. And the reason the government did that is they wanted to be able to use commercial companies because they realized that when you're paying a company to develop something and then create it, there's a lot of investment that's coming from the government. But if I can go to somebody and they already have the product, then there's no plus it's encouraging companies to come up with products that could be bought by the government and might have a commercial market as well. So to your question, there are situations where we don't flow down any of the cost accounting standard clauses, which are numerous, or some of the federal acquisition regulations. But we would have to get them to affirm that they are a commercial company. Gotcha. It makes a ton of sense. I guess one thing along those lines, you mentioned like it encourages companies to develop products that are both commercially and federally valuable and compliant. How would you think about that from like a risk perspective? Like, how do you do that almost like risk benefit analysis before developing a product? Sure. No, that's a great question. So when I worked at uh, Honeywell, we were built, you know, Honeywell makes filters. I've got three of them in my house right now that are about 25 years old. But we also made these particular AUPs, I forget what they're called, the airflow uh, processes and aircraft. And they had to be configured to a standard to a fighter jet. And uh, the standards, the mill stats were so difficult to match. So we could not subcontract that because we didn't have any subcontractors that had these mill standards or had ISO 9000 or 9001 at the time. So we built those ourselves, and there would be a risk going to a subcontractor. That's why we went out to the subcontractor and got them certified so we could get those out. So you're looking at risk, and the government says, if this is something that's critical, the part that if it fails, you can't pull a jet over at 40,000 feet. You just crash to the ground. That item is at risk, so we have to have more standards around that, more requirements there, more testing and even testing as it gets you know, shipped and comes to the government through their government freight forwarder, they will test it there when it gets there. And then they'll actually take some and do their stress test and their temperature test and all those. So as a part becomes more critical to the government, there's more risk associated with it. And that's when you're looking at a subcontractor, the subcontractor is not your company, so you don't have the control over that. So a lot of times companies will just do that themselves, you know, build that subpart or subassembly themselves. So when you look at another company, right, to do business with, because I mean, you've been a part of these and I think your story earlier around like the father and purchasing person who pushing through contracts on fixed costs. Like when you look at like doing business, I'm assuming that there's, it's not just the compliance with what they're trying to sell, but it's their risk profile as a company. When you are working with your vendors and your third parties, how do you think about not just the risk of your relationship with them, but their culture of risk Yeah, as an organization? So my answers are going to be 30 years old. So the first thing I would do is generate a Dun & Bradstreet to look at their financial position. Then what we would do is we would ask them for a listing of all their clients and the amount of business with each client. So if you think about it, if I'm the largest vendor or, or uh, customer they have, that's a risk. And if, by the way, if I am 
looking at them and they are the only supplier, they're a sole source, then I have a risk too. So there I want to be even more prescriptive on going out and making sure they're going to be solvent for the next X number of years, especially with vendors and government contracts. The money is made in government contracting through spares. If you're doing manufacturing, your money is always made in spares. You know, once the government buys a tank, they can't go to Radio Shack to get parts for it. You know, they have to come to you, and that's where you make your money. Companies actually set up these demo depots or these areas right out where the, the tanks are being used or, or being ma maintained, and they have a, a storehouse of parts. So parts is really, really, really important. So if I'm looking at a vendor and I'm finding out they're only going to be viable for three years, I know that, hey, my contract goes for five years, and then I'm looking at 25 years useful life of this tank, so I'll get 25 years of spares. But if this company is not going to be solvent in three years, I have to go find another company, and I have to pay to have them set up all their machining, their, their uh, standards to start all over. So it's very important when you look at vendors, you look at them for – First of all, what are you contracting with them? And are there other alternatives? What is your relationship in their portfolio? Are you the largest person, they, largest contractor they have? Because then they're dependent on you, you know, if something happens. And then you also look at, um, I like to actually go to the site and uh, go in the wrong door and have to walk all the way through the facility. And I would look to see, are there machines that are out of service? Are there machines that have a repair sign on them? Is there an excess amount of tooling in the tool in the tool area, meaning they're not using them as much? Those are telltale signs that there's something going on with the company. When companies can't pay to fix their equipment, you know, then they're down to using half the number of equipment to do the same amount of business. You're at risk because now if one piece of equipment breaks down, you're liable not to, you know, get your parts. And then you have to look at, well, if we're the smallest customer they have, we know that we're last in line. Another big thing that people don't think about is, as a contractor, prime contractor, you're giving them special tooling. And these are how to describe them. They're like applications for machines that are specified for making a certain part. And they can cost tens of thousands of dollars. And you're giving them to your supplier. If your suppliers is not doing well, they're not going to maintain those toolings and, and you're going to lose the value of those toolings. Or if they go insolvent, then they put everything up for sale, your tooling could be lost. And then you turn around to the government and say, we've lost your tooling. There's all kinds of reasons to keep your finger on the pulse of their, their finances and their business. You know, if they come back and ask for an advance, I would start looking for another vendor. If they have a change in ownership or leadership, you know, we've seen where there was one thing in Texas where the father passed away and the son took over. It was a business that didn't have anything to do with aerospace or anything like that, but it was owned by uh, General Dynamics. And we went down there to look at this, and we asked about the accounts receivable. And they opened up a drawer, and there was a Rolex watch and a set of keys to an aircraft. So instead of getting payments from their vendors, they were just taking gifts. So, I mean... <laughs> Right there, we should have known well in advance that this was a company. And we started, I wasn't involved in this when we sent three other auditors down there and spent about a month finding all kinds of things. And all these red flags should have been caught by Arthur Anderson at the time. Because Arthur Anderson had just been in there and signed off on this company. They even said they evaluated the constituency. They obviously didn't. Another key point, don't depend on a third party to do your due diligence. 
that was a good lesson. And of course, Arthur Andrews is not around anymore. It tells you a little bit about their work quality. But that's that's kind of what I'd say is just look for different changes in the company or anomalies or don't just say, oh, you know, the sun's taking over the business. No big deal. That's where I start ratcheting up my oversight, go visit them, do things like that. If they're a critical vendor, if they're not, start looking for alternatives. And I guess you should also always have a kind of a bench of alternatives when it comes to subcontracts. That's so interesting. Before working at LogiGate, I worked at Deloitte and it's so it's fascinating because even when I was there, like 20 years after, you know, Enron and I think WorldCom, Arthur Anderson is like, you kind of still feel the ripple effects of it throughout those industries. And I think the example you gave is just like, it's interesting to hear how we've set up a system of this where they were meant to come in and do audit and confirm accounts receivable, all of that. And then you just checking a little bit extra, we're able to like find the risk there and mitigate it in its own way. What triggered us to go there is the son died in a plane crash. I, that's why I mentioned the keys. <laughs> so if he had not crashed his plane, I don't know how deep we would have been with that company. I, I think we would have lost quite a bit of, of our uh, reputation with that company because it was a broad-based company doing concrete line, things like that. And it was nationwide, building highways, basically. So, yeah, good point. That's incredible. Yeah, you know, it's also interesting, like it's kind of, I mean, this seems like it's been a re- recurring theme of this conversation where there's this these things that seem like everyday life, like counting cars. I don't want to say like someone passing away, but these kind of events that you wouldn't expect or directly correlate with like financial audits or audits in that sense or risk, but the, the things you're identifying as reasons to investigate in a business. That's a good point. I mean, let's face it, change is a point in time where you have the highest potential of risk, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. It's interesting to hear these like really tangible examples of that. And like, so we've talked a lot about like the groups that you've done business with and kind of like your suppliers and your subcontractors. How have you built partnerships throughout your organizations to help strengthen the culture of risk. So for example, at Boeing or Honeywell, like how have you built a culture of risk internally at your organizations? Yeah. There's so many things that you can do. I always engage leadership in advance of meetings where we had some difficult topics to talk about relative to risk or escapes or things. And I always would talk to people in advance one-on-one. Bad news is easier to give one-on-one where people don't have an audience or they're not subject to public ridicule. So that, I always found that was a really small but good practice so that when I get into a meeting and I start talking about where we have some issues, I've already got an advocate there or I've already pulled that person into the problem and, and they're not going to help with the solution. Some of the other things that I have done is I make sure that when we have our control review board meetings where we get a group of experts and staff to come together to talk about issues. I ask those managers to have one person come with them to the meeting that would not only go to that meeting. And the reason I want them to do that is because I want them to see how a risk is identified, how you if then the statements, how you identify root cause, how the root cause should address the then statement, how we then set up both 
mitigating controls to address what happened and sustaining controls. When I was at Boeing, one of the things that the controller, a corporate controller told me once was, I'm so sick of people telling me that, you know, when we have these major problems that cost the company millions, that they're going to institute training. That's not the answer. You know, it might be one of the solutions, but it's not the answer to every risk. Doing a really strong root cause analysis is so critical. And by having people who would not normally be exposed to that process brought in as observers of that, what we ended up doing is every person that came to those meetings left, and now they were another set of eyes out there looking for issues. And whereas my control review board that I've been managing now for nine years started out with only the staff would come up with issues. They would come in with issues and they would only come in with issues when they rose up to their level. And they would have to take months to get to them or multiple escapes to get to them. Now what we have is we have people out there, unbeknownst to themselves, policing our processes. And most of the issues that I have come into my control review board are identified by people who are executing processes, who are working with other groups, who are at the worker level, and they're bringing those in. And they're also bringing those in with a better understanding of what happened. See, previously, we had an executive come in and they were kind of parakeeting what the person below had told them. They didn't have any depth to their understanding. So engaging everybody in that process. Another thing we do is we have uh, this thing called Ask the Expert, where we bring in experts to just talk about topics once a month. And those topics are, you know, what I've told people is don't bore people with citing standards or regulations or anything like that. Come in as if you're talking across the table in the cafeteria from somebody and explain what your your risk area is, what your responsibilities are, what we need to watch out for, and then end with how they can help. So we did that for risk enterprise risk management, and we had over 120 people voluntarily call into this meeting. And uh, we've had many hits after that, where people have gone into the material that's housed in a general area to look at that material after the fact. So people are very interested in how we manage risk because they realize that there is so much risk involved, especially with our company, which is a commercial company now doing business in the federal space. There's nothing more at risk than that because you're bringing in literally no standards, get the product out the door regardless of who we have to kill to follow the requirements, make sure you're doing everything. Even closing out a contract takes a, you know, a Herculean effort. Engaging people at all levels and making sure they understand the enterprise risk management process and what risk is and how we manage it. People start thinking through that. I had people coming to me with an issue saying, you know, I found this, I saw this going on. And I think as I was thinking through the process, I think this is where we might have the issue. And I was also thinking that based on my experience, we might be able to use this particular application to manage this and control it better. So they're coming to me with the risk, the root cause, and the solution because they understand the whole process better. And it's not rocket science. It's I have a problem in my home. I just don't throw mud at it. I actually sit down and figure out what happened. Why did it happen? How do I fix it? If I fix it myself, does that raise the risk level? Probably yes. So contract somebody to come in. Who do I get? Well, I have to go through a certain process to make sure I get the right person. I apply that every day in my life. So it's everyone has that. It's kind of like a, a gene that's buried deep down, you know, that until 
people are exposed to what it means to identify risk with an organization, it's dormant. And then when people see that and people start thinking that way, now what you have is you have a group, a whole organization that is aware of risk, they're aware of how it's mitigated, and they're policing every day. That's so cool. And the other piece that you mentioned where it's not just that they're aware of the risk and they're policing it, but you're also starting to turn everyone into a problem solver in a way, because they're starting to think of like, what's the root cause of this? What are like, how can we mitigate? How can we solve these problems? Where it, I can imagine that it's not just like helping to mitigate those risks, but it's also helping to turn you into like a strategic advantage as like a more, I don't know, just like a more efficient and effective company as well. Well, that's exactly right. And one of the other elements that I've introduced to the company is I was just a little green belt. That's not a big deal. It's We had to do that when uh, our company was bought by GE. And I understand that there's a way of doing process mapping where you can go in and lay out the as-is map, you know, what we're doing now. So you can fly above the process and see where the controls and processes are. And then as a team, look at that and say, holy crap, we're missing, you know, we've got a gap here. We've got duplication here. We've got all this. So part of what I have introduced is every day evaluating controls and processes, not just from a risk standpoint, but also from a productivity and from an efficiency. But risk is also in there because if something is not being done, it could be a risk. So from our process mapping sessions, and I've I've run probably since I've been here, maybe uh, 12 or 13 of these, we have had dozens of risks that have been identified and promulgated through the control review board and up through the enterprise risk management process and eventually addressed. So process mapping is another thing. There's nothing better than actually having a layout of what your processes are showing all the key controls, all the key processes, roles and responsibilities. I had one process map where two people told me they were doing the same thing and they were kind of confused at why the other person was doing it. So we decided who was the best person to do it, and somebody now saves time not having to do this particular report. Then you can take that and you can use it as a learning tool when you bring new people on board and say, here, sit down and look at this. This is basically how our, our little group works, how things run through our group. Plus, for us, when the federal government comes in, if we can show them a process map that shows our controls and processes as they're doing their scoping of our of our of that particular process for audit, they're going to see we have all these controls in place, and they're not going to test them. They're going to say, oh, why, why test them? they got a control there. So a so whole bunch of reasons. So process mapping is another great way of getting people involved in evaluating uh, processes, controls, and the risks that are associated with them. Yeah, that's so cool. We've started to kind of like build that muscle here as well of just how do we start to like map out our processes, ensure that they are effective, controlled, mitigate risk. Like where is the... um to use the terminology here, that where's the muda, where's the waste associated in these processes so we can save people time and work better together. Um, so I love that as, I love that as an example, like it's a methodology and a thought process that kind of works in every part of an organization. I believe it does. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about this. I'd be interested though, is like, as you think about the future of GRC, what keeps you up at night? Where are you worried about risk. The space that I always worry about risk is when we get into a position where there's desperation. We 
sometimes align people's goals and objectives to financial or to program execution. And my concern is that we get to a point where we cut corners or we ignore a particular requirement or regulations because we want to get things done because they've come from a commercial environment where that is common. But for us, I think it's the GRC, the, the compliance program, probably has the, the biggest concerns and worries is because we know that there's always that tendency when people have done commercial work for 28 years and now they've been in a federal position for two years, you might default back to that. So we make sure that we do, I mentioned the ASCII expert, where we talk about what the ramifications are, what the requirements are. And the most important thing is we tell people why they have to do things this way. Again, I mentioned earlier that a lot of what the government purports that we need to do through regulation or, or cost accounting standard or whatever it might be is best practice. It is a good practice. So when people say, why do I have to fill out my time card every day? I say, well, let's, let's take a look at this. So it makes it more accurate that you do that, right? Plus, if you didn't fill out your time card all day, your manager could sit down and figure out what contracts he's overrun on and tell you to charge a different one. And now you become at risk for, you know, an audit and potentially uh, act of fraud. You know, there's a false claims act because time cards go into invoices, go to the government. So I tell people this and they kind of sit back and go, well, how does that affect me? Why do I have to do it daily? Well, wait till the end of the week and you fill out your time card, right? So do you remember what you worked on every single day and how much time you had? Well, I think I can do that. Well, the government doesn't believe that everybody can do that because most contractors have, their engineers have five or six projects they're working on every day, back and forth, and they have to keep track of those. So there's a reason why they're doing it, and it rains on the righteous and the unrighteous. So you have to do it too. And almost to the person, people go, oh, okay, well, that makes sense. So if you tell people, especially the engineers we have are brilliant people, they're brilliant people. If you tell them why we need to do a particular thing, they're more likely to do it. This where we dictate you got to do this and that's that because the government says so, it doesn't cut it. And I think you do that for most risk, you know, when you're talking about why we're not doing it this way. Well, here's what can happen. That's why I like the if-then statement. You know, when we start creating the if-then statements when we identify a risk, I can see people squirming in their seats. I didn't realize that could happen. Oh, my gosh. That's good Lord. And in a lot of cases, they're culpable as well. So they could be up for fraud or penalties or things like that. So. I try to not beat people up, but let them know that they're, you got to put your big boy pants on when, when you're dealing with the government and, and follow the standards because there is consequences to making promises that you don't keep or big girl pants. Sorry. I think to your point, like it's interesting that I think about this a lot, the psychology of compliance and how in a way there's this kind of like basic, I feel like there can be a culture where compliance is the stick and not the carrot, where it's like you do this because the government says you have to do it. Like that's just like kind of like it's almost a like a fear-based approach to compliance. Whereas when you shift to more of a here's the why, here's how it benefits you, and here's how it becomes better, it shifts to this like compliance can become a carrot that people do because it adds value and it helps them understand that this isn't a rule for rule's sake. It's a rule because there are consequences and better ways of working. And that shift, I think, is is such a light bulb moment for, I mean, it was for me, but it, for other organizations as well. And it's interesting to hear just like so many like little examples of that in what you're doing. My boss was a, when I was at, at Harris Corporation, he was the director of compliance and he had a 
contracts background. So he dealt with people. He negotiated things. He was, he was a brilliant man. But he didn't know anything about compliance or risk or anything. But I'll tell you what he did have is he would sit down and say, we are going out there to audit these people, uh, not to beat them up, but to find where we can help them. And that was the mindset. And we started going out and they would rate us. They would rate us for, first of all, one through 10, how applicable was the audit to their concerns? And then second rating was how well did we do? And those two ratings, if they were separated by more than two points, we had to do a corrective action and find out what we did wrong. We had to be very, very, I mean, we were driven to do the right thing and be, you know, work with the auditee. And the funny thing is within three years, People we had audited were calling us up to come in and do a process analysis of a different process in their organization because they saw it as beneficial because the audits that we did had given, like you said, we didn't uh, slap on the wrist with a, a stick. Instead, we found ways that they could do things better and be more regular. But I never walked in saying, I know more than you. I walked in saying, teach me about your processes. I, I know, you know enough to be dangerous. And then as I was going through it, and if I found something that I, I thought should be changed, I actually sat with the task owner to talk to them about that and get their feedback. And so when I go into the exit conference, when I bring this up, leadership would look to the expert and say, yeah, this is a great, great thing to do. So I like the idea of uh, being more of a look, you know, perceived as someone who's helpful. You know, I've seen some abrasive people in audit, seen some abrasive people doing risk management that are just they're like the soup Nazi, for goodness sake. They're just, you know, very strict. Then I've seen people like my old boss, Terry Pfizer. He was he was a brilliant example of just you can do business with people, get them to do the right thing without browbeating them. So I agree with you. I like just going back to the psychology of risk, like that concept of just trying to like building credibility as like a member of an organization or like as a new partner to someone. Like there's this, like you gotta you can build credibility through knowledge where you, like you said, you knew enough to be dangerous. And then you build credibility through seeking to understand this other person's and this process, why they do things the way that they do. The last piece then I think is of that almost like approach is there's then in the way you're advising and trying to add value to them is not, to your points, acting like you know more than them, but acting as a partner of like, what about how can you message potential improvements in a way that isn't like slap on the wrist, but is instead a would this work better kind of approach. And like thinking, I think for me, that's a really helpful like mental model of like know your stuff, seek to understand, be a partner as like kind of like a a compliance risk model for working with the business. Well, that's a brilliant summary. I wholeheartedly agree. Well, that was all the kind of like risk questions I had. We do tend to like to end this on something we call risk or that, where we kind of just pose different, like <laughs> sometimes goofy, sometimes not questions about risk. So first off, some of your earlier stories, John, really seemed like you were acting as a detective and investigating risk and fraud. So I guess my first question is like, who do you think would be a better auditor, Lieutenant Columbo or Sherlock Holmes? <laughs> Hey, I like Colombo. Okay. All right. Sure like Holmes Ducati. <laughs> and nobody smokes a pipe. That's all fair points. So next one would be more of um there's a lot of buzz around like emerging technology. So I think blockchain was the hot word a couple of years ago. 
right now, artificial intelligence is bigger. I'd be interested in, and I think your perspective is going to be awesome on this, is like, do you think the technology itself, so like artificial intelligence, or the regulations on the technology will have a bigger impact on the GRC industry? That's a very interesting question. So just this morning, I was solidifying a briefing. I'm putting together the Ask the Expert with young lady, I won't mention her name, but she does a daily newspaper that's uh, picked up by over 8 million people. I mean, she's brilliant. She talks about AI and she talks about it. I love her analogy. She said there's... Um, there's a movie called Unstoppable, and it's got Denzel Washington and uh, Chris Pine. And it's about a train that unfortunately is uh, started up and disabled the brakes, and it's run away, and it's going to hit this town and destroy it. And it's the efforts they're trying, the federal government and the uh, safety boards and everyone's trying to stop the train. And she equates IA is something like that. And she's saying that just like the Internet, AI is something that we got to start regulating or looking at regulations now or else we're going to run into some big problems. So I think the risk for GRC is that if we do not start taking this more serious and, and letting folks know what the ramifications are, then it's going to be a tremendous risk. But if GRC is involved in helping to set parameters, you can even do those within your own company, which would start to mitigate the risk of abuse of AI or, or, or the issues that are surrounding AI. She brought up a couple of examples. I'll just share these with you real quick. Uh, there was a mother got a phone call while at a soccer game. And in the middle of the soccer game, she heard her son's voice on the other end saying, Mom, they took me from the game. Help me, help me, help me. And then the voice came back on and said, go get X number of dollars from your bank and meet us here. And she stopped what she was doing and started to move towards the car, but turned to a friend and said, I've got to leave. They've abducted my son. And, and the lady said, she, well, he's over there at the concession stand. I can see him from here. So they had called the person's house, got a three-second snippet of their voice, and were able to turn that into a, a voice that would respond to the person on the other end. So just some horrible applications of AI. So there's personal risk, but there's also business risk that we I don't think we quite have our arms around. So my step towards making sure we don't have a problem is education. Our president agreed the, last week I sat in on the executive board for my boss, and I mentioned this, and he said, look, let's get this out to everyone, explain to them what it is, talk about status, keep people apprised of the changes in AI through her newsletter that she has, and make sure people are educated on this. And I think that's important. You know, the internet came and people didn't know anything about it until somebody said, push this button, you go in here, you can search this. And all of a sudden, the information is being taken over, nobody knew. So I think awareness of AI and its potential of the benefits of it are tremendous, but also, you know, looking at it from a risk standpoint on how it could be abused or how it could be used against us. I hope that helps. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear on the podcast, but if I... If I could, this would be the moment where I react with like a holy cow. Like those stories are crazy. It is always like a fast. I, when I've asked that question before, we've never gotten quite that tangent, like that almost extreme of a response where it's almost to the point where you are simulating a person or like taking other thoughts this level. But to your point, like I think for the business side of things, there are 
it helps us be smarter in the risk space, but it also helps our attackers be smarter. And so like you, like everyone's playing this constant battle of education and enablement to ensure that our the members of our organization are able to react and like able to see through those things. So I think that example is it's pretty, pretty incredible. Well, let me give you a positive example too, so we don't leave on a bad note. Okay. <laughs> this person who was presenting, again, she's just incredible, so knowledgeable. She said that she could go in and get this, uh, the AI app, this particular app that they put together, her name and information. And three minutes later, they would have a full biography written on her, ready to publish. Because they can go into Facebook, they can go into news articles, they can go into all these things, and they can put all school records, military records, and they can pull all this information in no time. It was just her asking, hey, could you develop a, you know, so there are some incredible advantages to AI that if we ignore AI completely, that's a risk too, you know, <laughs> a risk of, of losing business to, you know, a third world country or one company who's, you know, dominating. So, uh there's that risk as well. That's kind of cool. AI writing my autobiography, Chris Clark. Yeah, mine would come back. It's going to be a brochure. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I love the examples of some of like listening to other thought leaders in the space, John. I'd be interested Um, it's kind of like last question. What are you reading? What do you follow to kind of just keep up in the space? There's always interested in, in like learning how others are learning about risk and about our industry and about business. So any recommendations for our listeners? Uh, yeah, there's a couple of groups that I have worked with in the past, some very, very, very helpful groups that have jumped in when I've asked a question. As a matter of fact, uh, right now I'm trying to uh, look up one that just sent something this morning, I think. Gardner topics are always good to go into those. They publish some great things that motivate audit talent to build new skills executive leadership, strategic risk management. Uh, these are just some of the seminars that they're providing gratis in the future. And then there was a couple of others I'd, I'd have to go in. There was actually a gentleman who wrote a book in Australia. And I did reach out to him and he sent me a copy. I, I still yet to read it, but he had a great approach on how to identify risk. Uh, I could try to get that information to you probably uh, towards the end of the week or, or maybe next Monday if you want to include that. But I'll tell you one group. I heard them at a conference and I reached out to them. And next thing I know, I was, uh, was talking with the president on their that particular topic. And they gave me some metrics to put together for a company. And I presented them to our executive staff. And it completely changed their direction on how they were managing risk just from that uh, one interaction with that company. I, I can't remember what the company's name was because there's so many out there. But I'll try to figure it out. Was it Logicate? Yeah, well, Logigate, of course, uh, it's the cool solution for all parties. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm joking. <laughs> well, if you have those resources, I, I mean, at the very least, I'd love to hear them. Those are kind of all the questions I had today. Any like last thoughts that you'd like to leave with the group? To be a thought leader within your group and think of, I mean, I constantly am thinking of ways of communicating, how to communicate. You know, there's different ways of communicating with different generations and different uh, functions, you know, engineering is different from contracts. Keep relationships strong with your different functional groups, especially find someone within the group that uh, you have a lot of respect for and that um, has that kind of risk mindset. And try to put together like an informal um, compliance champion with each of your groups 
that's helpful because then they promulgate your information to their group and the group always respects somebody in their group better than they do a compliance person, right? So try to build those bridges, those relationships. Uh, but that's probably it. Well, thank you, John. It was great having you on. We really appreciate all the insights and uh, looking forward to talking to you later. Great. Nice being had. So thank you.